Today is Monday, March 22nd. My birthday's tomorrow. Listen, Happy me. birthday. Thank you. It's LA Podcast. I am here with Alyssa Walker and Scott Frazier. I'm Hayes Davenport. We got a lot to get into today. We have a great guest, Isaac Bryan, uh, one of the co-chairs of the Measure J campaign, which we talked about a lot on this show, dedicating 10% of unrestricted county funds to alternatives to law enforcement and being reinvested back into communities of color, low-income communities in Los Angeles. He is running for state assembly in District 54, and he's going to talk to us about a lot of different things. We also have some L.A. stories that we want to tell, right? Do we? Do either of you have one? I have one. Great. Uh, as, as we mentioned last week, my wife, Sarah and I are expecting a baby. That means as of, I think as of last Monday, she was eligible for a vaccine in the tier system, which maybe may not be long lasting. The tier system might be going away soon, but currently still in place. And we actually went earlier this week, her and I, to get her her first shot of the Moderna vaccine. So she is hot dog half halfway there, half vaxxed up. The my my LA story specifically is about going to Dodger Stadium for the the vaccine. the The mega vax site is mm-hmm. very for those who haven't done it yet. It was very interesting to me. First of all, we had I think a little bit of conversation on the show a while ago about whether or not you would be able to actually pick the vaccine that you had. And you kind of can. I mean, it's interesting, like when you're going through the appointments, the bookings system is terrible. If you go through, if you go through basically any site, you have to check individually to see whether or not they have appointments. Most of them just say no, check back later. I was able to get some assistance in looking through uh, in, in like looking through other site portals and through Carbon Health, if I went directly through there, I was able to find some appointments available at Dodger Stadium. Getting getting to the appointment itself, there are miles. It, it is it's different from the COVID testing. I feel like the the setup is completely changed, and it's like you're driving through what amounts to like miles of cones. Um, the lines were pretty long. But but the longest part of the wait, it, 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 I think it took about maybe an hour and a half to two hours. The longest part of the wait is because of the you know the the fifteen minute observation period in which you know maybe mm-hmm. maybe Yo Yo Ma plays a concert for you, or maybe you just <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you just sit there listening to Power One Hundred Six or something for for fifteen minutes. But like that process where it's basically like cars driving through a almost like going through like a car wash is what takes like the the longest period of the time because they just line up a bunch of cars vaccinate 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 wait to see if you have any symptoms and then that group goes off and then they just repeat it so hundreds of cars doing that it it, it does take a while but painless volunteers the the workers there all fantastic with so much uh, gratitude for them doing that and and feeling relatively optimistic got that post-vaccine optimism even though I haven't personally gotten it yet I'm vicariously feeling optimistic and with a pregnant vaccine you get 
two vaccines mm-hmm. in one, two people immunized at, at one one shot, two shots. So right. that's exciting. I mean, you just, you said you just what 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 was the study that came or the Yeah, well, I think that's why you that's why you really do want to encourage pregnant women to get it, not only because they're more your immune system takes a big hit when you're pregnant. So you do want to make sure that you're um, getting immunizations, but you, the, you're passing the antibodies on to your baby. And they just had a study where they confirmed that a woman who had gotten, I don't know which shot, I think it was the Moderna, had, had they confirmed that the baby had antibodies. Was, so that is- born with COVID so antibodies. Oh, exciting. Yes, you are, you're creating- a new type of organism, <laughs> human organism that will not <laughs> the next generation post pandemic. It's so exciting. Science I was gonna. I, I joked in our group chat that we've finally made it to the epilogue of the Stephen King novel, The Stand. <laughs> <laughs> Who else has LA stories? I guess mine's. Mine's somewhat related, so I'll just, and it is a little bit news too, but I just want to, I think it'll, we'll remove it from the news conversation just to enjoy the ridiculousness of it. I too spent a lot of time looking at the vaccination clinic mazes for a story because this week at the on Monday when they announced the Oscar nominees, they also announced that the Oscars would for sure be held at Union Station, which has caused... Scott and I, basically a week of uh, group chat angst, I think, of just constant, is this really happening? Why is this happening? How do we stop this from happening? Endless, endless conversations. Everything Metro does Um, causes me angst, honestly. I wish it weren't so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want my life to be like this. So I quickly wrote a story being like, you know, we should really move the move them to Dodger Stadium since that's where we do everything else this year. And let's just have like an amazing vaccination clinic red carpet where you roll up in your car mm-hmm. and they give you the shot. And then you, yeah, whoever entertains you and Sean Penn gets some special award uh-huh. for doing the testing. You know, it could be really great. They do like a montage of famous baseball movies. I think it could be really, really good. You could put a cardboard instead- cutout of every Oscar winner. <laughs> In front of the camera and behind it, just <laughs> in this Dodger Stadium stands. All 50,000 seats filled with past and present Academy members. Um, cardboard cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, this is, I, and I also, you know, w- you know, was kind of looking at like Union Station in a new light and we have had disruptive events there, say a film shoot where they mm-hmm. shut down the COVID testing, as you remember, um, until advocates made a bunch of noise and they reopened it. So I'm really, have really been struggling this whole week. And it was brought up thanks to Mike Bonin at the Metro board meeting, like kind of like, did anybody think through this? Like, is, did, did anybody, is anybody talking about how to minimize this, these disruptions? But I fail to see how this event could possibly not be incredibly, incredibly troubling for people who take transit Based on what we know, what it does to Hollywood, which we talk about every year, I think here, uh, when it comes to street closures and setting up metal detectors and adding uh, patrols of people into the neighboring patrols of people into the neighboring streets, which are where people live and work. Um, 
So I'm like looking at this with new dread mm-hmm. and ACT LA and a huge coalition of uh, mobility justice advocates put out this great report this week about Metro's policing contract and kind of asking them to end it by next year and reinvest over $7 million back into the system. And it just fits so perfectly with this type of decision to hand over the station and beef it up with a bunch of police for the night uh, in one of the places that has, you know, the most unhoused, the greatest number of unhoused people in the in the neighborhood who rely on like bathrooms and transit in that station. Metro says for their part that the detour at Union Station, my my initial assumption when they said the the front half of the station would be closed off was that what that meant was that you would have to if, for example, you were unfortunate enough to, I don't know, get off the silver line in front of Union Station and try to make a connection to the rail lines there, that you would have to go all the way around the, the substantial the substantial campus on which Union Station sits, which is, I don't know, half mile or more, walk around the station and then go in through Patsoris Plaza. Metro is saying that that's not the case. They said that you would be able to enter through the side courtyard, which is what they did uh, when they were doing renovations on the station. I still don't know if I believe them. I I mean, Alyssa, maybe you and I should try and go t- <laughs> take the take the bus down there, do some on the ground reporting re- during the Oscar. ceremony. I mean, if yeah, they're really doing saying. it in like the the what the ticket hall is that is that where they're hosting it? I really can't imagine that they're just like it's in multiple places. Okay. It's like taking over. You know, they're doing it inside and outside, and they're also doing it at the Dolby. I want to so see what that experience also is be, like. <laughs> there will also be streets closed and security up in Hollywood, so they have two places now. But yeah, there better be a freaking red carpet for the transit riders to the side, where we have perfect access for everyone to get to their trains and buses. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you, that is not happening. I, I still imagine... And like free commemorative tap cards loaded up. The, the question was... These are my demands. The question was put by council member and, and Metro director Mike Bonin to the head of operations, Jim Gallagher, like, can we require people showing up to this event to take <laughs> yeah. transit here? And I can... I mean, I just imagine that the response was one of pure indignation. Like, why we're, we're going to make... <laughs> is, it, is it even worth the Instagram posts and, like, the selfies and stuff? Right. Well, that's what we might get at least one out burger out of this, on right? a bus or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wetzel's pretzels oh. after the ceremony. Oh. They said it's all staying open. But, yeah, I mean, if that's the one thing we might get out of this, great. Or maybe we could get uh, one of the celebrities to, like, sign on to the to the ACT LA proposal to get rid of the policing budget. You know, we, we could try to work this, but I, I don't feel in any way that this is going to serve the writers once again. So I kind of, I kind of spent the week in a heavy depression about the future of transit in this, in this city. Uh, I was watching Hail Caesar, the Coen brothers movie last week, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about at some point on our bonus show, 30 miles on. And it said at a movie studio and I was looking at the exteriors and I was like, what studio is this? And I asked my wife and we couldn't figure it out. And I looked it up and it is the Union Station side courtyard. I did not recognize it <laughs> at all. It's a it's a legendary filming location for so it was a police station and Blade oh, Runner. Yeah. It was a bank in Catch Me If You Can, which we also watched it the last few weeks. So that's Union Station. But yeah, they shouldn't have the Oscars there. 
My allies, I'll do a quick rain check, which is we did get 0.3 inches earlier mm-hmm. this week, which vaults us into 5.8 inches for the year. Uh, we might be done, but just 0.05 more inches would put us past the 2012-2013 number. So that's that, that, that's the next one that we still have to hurdle. My LA story, I you know, I'm vaccinated to be able to do outreach work. And so I'm out doing that again. And this week was at an encampment in Hollywood where four residents got access to Project Room Key. Uh, very exciting. And we, we went out with Lhasa just to make sure, you know, because like Sela has been doing outreach to this encampment for a really long time. They know mm-hmm. us. We wanted to see if we could like help expedite this process. And I went with someone that's gone there every week for uh, a long time. Um, And two people went with Lhasa right away. And two others needed a little more time. And one said, I would really like to get into a hotel. I'm only allowed to take two bags. This is the rule. You can only take two bags when you go into Project Room Key. And I've got more stuff than that. And I I really don't want to leave my stuff. And so we said... We'll provide, like, let's put something in, let's get a storage locker for you. Like, let's put your stuff in storage. We'll put it near where you are in in your hotel, which was on complete, in Venice, other side of town, just to, like, help you get into this place. And the guy says, okay, they're, they're coming back tomorrow morning. So, like, we go back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. He spent the entire day with his friend packing up what turned out to be two, I, I rented a pickup truck. Two full truckloads of stuff, all like not trash, like possessions. Mm-hmm. This guy had worked in construction. He had all his tools, an entire like a huge tool chest, clothes, a lot of like shoes, just like, th- you know, things that th- the he had. These were his things. And so it was like two full days driving this stuff out to Venice, putting it into a storage locker getting like him the like access to the storage locker like an incredibly huge ordeal that's just like one tiny little facet of what like gets one person into housing and also expensive like Sela's very lucky we have yeah. donors that are like facilitate this being able to happen and I'm so grateful that an organization like Sela exists to kind of like fill the gaps that honestly the city just the city, county, whatever, no agency has is nimble enough mm-hmm. to to provide like these gap filling organizations kind of have to exist because bureaucracy is just like sort of inert. Um, but you know it, it, we saw it again, and we'll talk about this a little more. On there was an article about Echo Park Lake, a wedding between two unhoused people at Echo Park Lake this week, who said they they were offered a room, but they have a ton of stuff. One of them was was housed not that long ago and has all her possessions on the lake and she has nowhere to put it. And if she leaves it to go to a hotel, it will get stolen. So that's another thing where like a huge storage facility has to be rented to to, to put someone in. So it was just like sort of a reminder of, of how there's a story like that for every single person that needs to get housed, whether it's they need to be have access to medical care, whether it's a huge amount of storage, whatever, just the, the, the sort of legit, like it's, it's a logistically enormous process and it's not fast. Uh, and this is something we have to be 
I'm cognizant of again yeah. now that uh, we're sort of getting back into the world. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing the same sort of uh, I've been doing the same sort of outreach, street watch again, and I mean, it, it, one thing that's striking to me in in the story that that you just told is I I beat this drum frequently, and and I guess we'll continue to do so, but that there's nothing if you were if you were talking about those those two folks who had or that that one person in particular who had too much stuff to be able to bring with him to project room key is the 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 role that i see sila filling is that for the the city infrastructure for government agencies it seems like our politicians have given them the cover to do nothing by saying that's service resistance. Yes, we we offered you something, and you said no. It doesn't matter what the what the reason or rationale is. But there there seems like there's nothing positive to me that is actually gained by lumping everyone together into this one enormous category of of service resistance, except to to sort of cut the legs out from underneath efforts to get people help. Right, and I honestly I don't think it's a lot to expect for any governmental organization to be able to cover every single aspect of someone getting rehoused but these organizations exist all over the city and so rather than just saying other oh, service resistant or whatever you can do what the city did in this case which is partner with another organization yeah. to to make this process work like it's okay that they can't that lasa can't do every single thing lasa is not a medical service they need to partner in a lot of cases with like hospitals to get people care like that's fine but the, the like the next step isn't just saying like oh well they said no mm-hmm. for this reason like you you try and make the contacts to get it to to get it to happen and what's the why, why two bags is that just is there any kind of reasoning i'm sure you know it's like it's arbitrary and i understand why they they set some limit on it right because the the, like the hotels where they're putting people they just don't have room for all people's stuff they had zero you know they're they're transported in a van to to the hotel so they don't have room for more than two bags just in the van alone uh so i assume that just seems like it was created with no real thought about how people are actually living right now that they might be helping because if you say two bags i mean obviously people are living in tents that are much larger than that and you know sure. it just seems like it could even be even four a, bags would make a big even four difference. bags yeah exactly right. like, <laughs> but it wouldn't account for even that wouldn't account exactly. for everyone you would still need extra right storage help for right. a right. lot of people yeah uh okay we have a few things that we want to oh we'll do a quick covid chat Numbers are still very low. We've had three-digit new cases multiple times this week. New tests are at under 2% positivity. We're getting very close to seeing the lowest numbers in hospitalizations since March, April 2020, since like the very, very beginning of the pandemic. I think in other places across the country, there have been... Uh, a few examples of I, like I've seen places in the Midwest that have seen little case spikes even as as vaccina- vaccinations are happening. I don't know. People say that it's a, it's a variant. I don't know exactly what to attribute that to. But here, it's very easy to kind of wonder if we're just like out of the pandemic 
at this point. Well, and also looking at what happened in Miami this week, they the spring break crowds came in such force they had to close down the beach. I think they're limiting it to they're making everything close at eight and then they're closing the bridges so people can't get out to the beaches to party. Um, I, I don't I don't know if our spring break scene looks like that here or if there's even going to be maybe like in West Hollywood. I don't know. I'm just thinking of like certain places that might see similar uh, impacts because, um, you know, there, I, like I said before, there are people coming here and I don't Venice know. Venice was packed. Venice yeah. Boardwalk. Yeah. Packed. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of outdoor spaces and, and beaches for sure. But, you know, we, it's not like we don't want people to go to the beaches, but we it's like the the partying carrying drinks, walking down the street. I don't really have that scene either, but you know what I mean? But it's that kind of, that kind of situation that I, I worry about, but maybe they'll say certain places should have to close early. I, I can't even decide what, what would be the best thing, but. Uh, okay. So let, I mean, are we done with COVID? I mean, like at what point do we retire this? We're done segment? with COVID. I think we're done with okay, it. Okay. I guess we just move on. The shortest <laughs> COVID chat in <laughs> months. I want to talk a little bit about something in the news this week, which is the Hollywood Community Plan. We've alluded to it over the last uh, couple months. This is a a plan with a long historic legacy. It has not actually changed since 1988 for for a lot of reasons. Who would like to talk about the historic context of the Hollywood Community Plan? Sounds like uh, I hear Alyssa's music <laughs> my theme song hollywood nuts <laughs> <sighs> well i have lived in the hollywood community plan up until recently i did i did follow all this in the very early days and um it has never gone well and it continues to i think not go extremely <laughs> well <laughs> so if you remember just a quick community plan primer 35 community plans in the city of LA and they each are little mini documents on how uh, planning and zoning and land use is guided in, in those 35 little tracks. And it's been a very contentious topic over the last few years in particular because some of them haven't been updated in so long and Hollywood is one of them that the neighborhood has changed so dramatically that everything that we build there has to be an exception, which becomes with, comes with this fraught circumstances where certain council members are perhaps given money to make the exceptions. And so we have a lot of um, bigger problems that happen when it comes to development. The Hollywood one in particular, though, is a great story because we had a great new plan. Or I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily great, but we had a, a plan that was settled on and voted on. And then a lawsuit was uh, introduced in 2012 that actually knocked it out of being implemented. And if anyone wants to guess who might have brought that lawsuit to the city, I'll give you one guess. Was, was it a, a neighborhood association? It was a neighborhood association, okay. the La Mirada yeah. Associate, homeowner neighborhood association, whatever whatever yeah. that is. Uh, I I just want to say like, uh, is it a great plan? No. What would it have been passable if it had gone through in 2012? Yes. Yes. Like if we had been living under this plan yes. for a decade yes. at this point, 
Jesus Christ. Yes. I mean, it, I don't know. It it's, would have been better um, than what we, the situation we have now. Yes, that is the, true. Si- the situation that, that people living in the Hollywood, Hollywood community plan after 10 additional years of, of the continued gentrification of all these neighborhoods is substantially right. worse. Um, and so now there's, I don't know, there, there's more that needs to be done and probably should have been done in the first place. So now we have a vote this week, which... Depending on who you ask, uh, we have a new a new pl- proposal for the plan. We have a vote this week, which depending on who you ask was very bad, but for all different reasons. <laughs> so you have some people that are angry that it's still a, you know, co- will still allow for too much development. And some are angry that a certain part of Los Feliz, uh, Hillhurst is now, you know, a, 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 a higher higher buildings are going to be allowed during in that corridor, which is going to apparently ruin Los Feliz. And then a, a larger group, I think like the most powerful coalition and one that like I think we have been following and aligned with is the Just Hollywood Coalition, which really tried to not necessarily stop this plan from happening, but saying, here's a bunch of add-ons that we could introduce to protect renters, to make sure that hotels actually have to apply for a conditional use permit instead of being like the de facto development that's that's being brought to Hollywood, which is it's all been all mm-hmm. hotels. Certain protections for street vendors to be able to allow street mm-hmm. vendors to come back and use the streets. And then just a lot more of just kind of beefing up what are already pretty good affordable housing requirements for new developments because But making them even stronger because people are, of course, going to become and build buildings in Hollywood. It's not like there's any question that, you know, it's not going to be this uh, place that people are going to want to build and make money out of. So why don't we really try to strengthen those, especially because it's such a transit oriented neighborhood? And it turns out that we we didn't really get we got this plan that was again, like allows for housing to be built, but doesn't really take that second step that you know with the, the the coalition was asking for so are we just uh setting ourselves up for more more of the same i ask you my friends scott did a big breath into the <laughs> microphone and then he just made a face i want to i swallowed it yeah. i i i, I just swallowed it. i want to focus on the housing affordability aspect of it especially when it comes to like building new housing mm-hmm. which is the thing that has emerged as the predictable flashpoint in in these conversations, you know, Nithya Raman got into office and she oversees certain sections of of this plan, including Los Feliz and parts of Sunset Boulevard farther west in Hollywood, a neighborhood called Sunset Square is part of it. Uh, and she, uh, you know, the, the city council members, they don't have total authority over this process, but they're allowed to make recommendations. And she basically recommended, like you're saying, we have... These are transit-oriented neighborhoods, transit-oriented communities is what the technical planning definition is for what they're, what they're allowed to build to now, which requires them to, if they want to build higher, include a certain percentage of affordable units. And in these higher-resourced neighborhoods, wealthier, whiter neighborhoods, there's a lot of evidence that like you can go higher with your, with your required affordable percentages – and the developments will still happen. They'll still like they'll still like pencil out as as people say. They can afford to include a lot more mm-hmm. affordable development. And so what Councilmember Raman's planning section of her office put forward is basically build like like the ability to build a little bit higher, increasing height restrictions a little bit just for developments that focus on affordability. 
So basically going from like right now, the, the limit on Hillhurst, for example, is 36 feet in the plan, which is in some cases not even three stories, but it's a max, max of three stories. And so like taking that to something like five stories, if you're injecting a lot of, fort- of affordability into the development, I sort of thought, because I'm so stupid that like for years now we've been having this conversation about like like development here like too much development here or there or whatever and uh, a lot of white homeowners have said in response to state development bills and things like that like it's not enough it's not affordable this this development isn't affordable we need to focus on affordability affordability and now these these little height increases are totally predicated on the presence of affordable units in these projects and so i thought like surely we've gotten far enough that like modest height increases just for affordability will not be something that these groups will even really be able to push back on because like it's something that we've established is a need especially in wealthier white neighborhoods which these are and the people pushing back on them sorry every single one that i've seen is white without exception and then these organizations that are pushing back all their leadership is uh, is 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 white. This is just like I have not seen a single exception to this. And what I've seen happen is they just don't mention the affordability aspect at all. They act like it doesn't exist. They just say like, oh, this is that you're selling out to developers. You're building skyscrapers on Hillhurst. We're talking about five story buildings. Uh, the, the, like the affordability aspect just doesn't. They will not raise it. And just don't make it part of the conversation. And that makes this very hard to engage with. Uh, they just like just pretending that putting new affordability in these neighborhoods is not even something that is being discussed. When in reality, it is the only thing really at issue here. Right. They don't want it to happen. And so they are fighting tooth and nail. There's a Los Feliz Ledger article about this. And the, the one of the comments is from someone named Daryl who says, I am tragically disappointed by the new city council person's traitorous decision to support higher density and taller buildings on Hillhurst Avenue, Los Feliz. She has stabbed the residents and homeowners of Los Feliz literally in the back. Los Feliz Village, this is something, this is a tell. When you're talking about a neighborhood with respect to new construction there, you have to add village to to it to its name where it didn't previously exist. Uh, we should do like a story called like the villages where we just talk about all the villages. Yeah. Westwood Village, Larchmont Village. Go on. Los Feliz Village along Hillhurst and Vermont is one of the few last village-type atmospheres that are both urban and pedestrian-friendly and not overly dense with ugly commercial buildings and ugly tall condos and crammed with polluting, noisy traffic. Later down, it says, Councilman Tom LeBond is turning over in his grave. God rest his soul. Also turning over in their graves are the Californians Don Los Feliz and Colonel Griffith. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, let me unpack that last one cool. for a second. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the I, I took a deep breath and I swallowed what I was about to say earlier because I have nothing good to say about this entire process. The community plans, which everybody seems to suggest that they want. I don't know why. I think the community planning process is stupid and and irre- irreparably fucked basically uh there's there's no pl- there's no way to salvage the the community planning process in in my view it can pretty much only generate harm if if even that i mean we're we're 
having the experience now of a 35 year old plan that can't be updated at all. So I, I guess the only harm is in allowing the the status quo of 1988, which is harm. It's a me- that's it, 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 <laughs> that like you, so you get it both ways. Yes. You're exactly right. Inaction is harm, right. and and changes are harm. Yes. Uh, so there there is there's there's nothing coming out of this. This is the conversations around this are in my mind stupid and focused on completely the wrong things. Los Feliz is one of the widest neighborhoods in all of Southern California, and it is filled with rich entitled people who think that. Their ability to enjoy a village-like atmosphere is the only thing that matters. Uh, Conversations around inclusionary zoning, so-called, which um, amounts to the use of area median income to set thresholds at which people can be given so-called affordable units. This conversation exists in like a weird I mean, it's like a tide pool eddy from which no one who enters it can ever escape. No progress is ever made because the only discussion is what is getting built here? How come it's not? Why are we not setting aside more of these units as affordable units? And then a beat later, what does affordable even mean? Who are these actually affordable to? The reality, as as I can see it, is that the state and the city need to be in the business of providing public housing. And that is not the case here. It doesn't exist here. For every breath that gets spent on 36-foot height limits on Hillhurst Avenue, I lose several months off of my life expectancy because I just could not give a fuck. I mean, build 10-story towers on Hillhurst. Who cares? They're, They're rich white NIMBYs. They are not going to like anything that you do ever because they've got everything that they want. Any change to the status quo is bad for people who own homes in Los Feliz because if they just sit there, their property values are going to increase ad infinitum. They don't have to care. Meanwhile, we're talking about a Hollywood community plan area in which gentrification is rampant. Uh, we, we've talked in, in recent weeks multiple times with good friends of the show, Sammy Halu Hernandez and, uh, and JT, the LA storyteller, who are doing a, a much more cogent analysis on what is actually important in the Hollywood community plan area, which is the spread of gentrification from neighborhoods like Silver Lake and Los Feliz to, to Virgil Village, to East Hollywood. Uh, eventually to Melrose Hill and other parts of, of Hollywood as well. Like we, we already know that more than 10,000 Latinx households have been priced out of Hollywood during the, during the last decade plus. That is, that is the issue. And, and if we're talking about the untrammeled rise or the, the, the unrestricted rise of market rate rents, which is a major problem, the the government needs to be in the business of counterbalancing that by providing options that people can actually afford. It doesn't, to me, make sense either that uh, we're going to stop that by somehow halting all market rate development. I would love to see it happen but I don't think that it's going to happen within the scope of the Hollywood community plan update. I'm sorry. I just, it just doesn't seem to me like it's the venue for that 
war to be fought and won. Uh, and then on the other hand, like we also want somehow market rate developers to fix things for low income residents, which they're just they're not going to do either. It's, it's neither of those is correct. We need to have uh, we need to have public housing and there should just not be so much energy spent wasted in my opinion on trying to make uh, white single family homeowners happy because they're just not going to be happy why would they yeah. be happy yeah and i think that's what a lot of the conversation the 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 meeting this week last week was what like 5 or 6 hours long <laughs> because mm-hmm. so much of it is it very very centered around the needs of the same people well some of them are newer to the scene, but it's really the same people that have been trying to stop this since um, 2011 and, and before. And, and the, the, one of the biggest like tripping points I think has been on, on in this whole conversation too, is like almost everything that was brought up like as a policy was, well, we're trying to fix that at the city level. So we don't need to necessarily address this in the, in the Hollywood community plan. Mm -hmm. But then there's like the, the other argument is, well, maybe we should test this in a place like Hollywood and get it into place now and make sure that it works really well. And then we could do it citywide. And there's this whole, what did you say? The tide pool eddy of uh, discourse or whatever. It's the same thing with like everything we try. And there has been some progress at the community plan level in recent years. Um, The South LA plan is always really held up as one where advocates really had a huge voice in in the changes that were made and and I think they uh, you know got almost all of of what they were asking for incorporated into the plan but then the paces at which we approve these uh, plan area by plan area is so slow that we can't hope to make any type of progress because nothing at the same time is happening at the city level so we're Again, we're like, I, I can't see, we haven't moved forward really. We haven't really changed the lives of the people who, like you said, will be, could be priced out of this neighborhood or have a, won't be able to continue their business in this neighborhood or something like that. But at the same time, we pandered so much to the people who already hold so much power into what gets built in this neighborhood that I, it, it doesn't seem like it's, it's going to move the needle, I think, in any direction. Yeah, you talk about the need to to like to focus on public housing, Scott. The closest thing we've had to that over the last couple of years is HHH, which is it's supportive housing. It's not public housing, but it is financed to a large extent publicly. And where HHH units are centered around the city is in the poorer uh, communities of color across Los Angeles. Uh, looking at the everyone in supportive housing tracker now, Marquise Harris Dawson, who represents uh, one of the poor districts in the city, has approved 729 units of supportive housing. Current price, 528 units. Uh, former Councilmember Jose Huizar, who represents Skid Row, approved 905 units. The wealthier districts, Bob Blumenfield approved 54. Paul Krikorian, 208. David Rue, 167. Paul Koretz, 99. Like, this is all a function of pushing out lower income residents to other districts. And so I, you know, I agree, obviously, about like not attempting to please richer uh, white homeowners. But I think like it's important that people know that this fight is happening which i don't think it's being it's like i don't think it's well documented right now 
except in the local newspapers that are documenting it as something to be uh, furious about and fearful right, of. Right, something that's bad. Right, right, right. Uh, let's move on to there's a lot going on in, in law enforcement this week. First of all, we're, we have not received that much information about these shootings so far, but LAPD shot five people this week in Los Angeles. Two in just the space of a few hours. It was a remarkable rash of what they refer to as officer-involved shootings over over this past week at the same time as a number of stories uh, were were coming out in, in local media related to past officer indiscretions and and more recent ones. Where would we like to... This was also a week in which uh, a, a team of L.A. Sheriff's deputies mm-hmm. shot uh, a mentally ill man who was in crisis and... Shot and killed. Shot and killed rather than wait for a mental health response team who had already been dispatched to arrive on the scene. LAPD, in, in, with respect to the five shootings in three days that you mentioned uh, Hayes posted, on social media, a, I mean, what, what amounts to their, their side of, of the story in each of those cases. So the pressure to respond, I mean, the LAPD has a habit of like you said referring to the or there's a policy of referring to these as officer involved shootings not releasing any details until they've decided what i guess the most favorable version of events to make public is in this case they ended up doing it for five different events at once in static screenshots Mm -hmm. and and the descriptions are so vague it is impossible to tell what is happening in any of these cases and and yeah, so we'll we'll wait and not. I, I think as we've said in the past, we won't spread what they put out there until it has been independently corroborated or or backed up by some sort of evidence, because we know that they have a, a tendency of not being borne out in, upon closer inspection. Meanwhile, this week charges were filed. I really want to dig into the the context of this because it's really really remarkable. This this goes back to when the Dodgers won the World Series in in October, and there were you know like downtown there were lots of like huge numbers of people gathering. Always results in some number of of arrests, uh, and in this case, LAPD they declared a unlawful assembly, uh, and as a result of that, eighteen people were arrested. At the same time, freelance journalist for L.A. Taco, Lexis Olivier Ray, who we've talked about on the show in the past, he is a, a constant presence on the ground at protests and, and marches, and uh, he's just like a, a really, really committed journalist. Was He was not arrested at this event, but he, he took footage of him being pushed and shoved and hit by officers while, while covering the event and shouting press, and this was a video that went viral. And then months later, the L.A. City Attorney's Office notified him that he faces a criminal charge for his behavior last night, specifically for failing to follow an officer's order to disperse. Lexis Olivier Ray is the only person being charged for his behavior that night. 
All in all, 16 cases uh, were submitted by the LAPD for for review. To, or uh, sorry, 19 cases were, were kind of presented to the city attorney's office by the LAPD or uh, California Highway Patrol. And Lexis Olivier Ray is the only person who they sought charges against. It seems beyond question that this has something to do with his report, like wanting to send a message to a reporter who, like I just said, has been out there. This is someone like who people are familiar with. It's an intimidation campaign. Yeah, well, he's all, and and he's also one of the journalists that filed a suit against uh, the city and the LAPD for the previous protests in in May and June. And again, it it seems like it is. It's like a direct retaliation for that as well. And I mean, talk about an intimidation campaign. Ray says that he was told he went to an informal hearing at the city attorney's office, which I don't know what that is. Was that one of the ones where you're supposed to like hold hands yeah, and get along story if circle. you got arrested for? And at that meeting, <laughs> he said a prosecutor told him this is from the L.A. Times's reporting James Quigley and the Kevin Rector that are the journalists. Uh, he said that a, a prosecutor told him the office would hold off on its case against him as long as he stayed out of trouble. But the failure to disperse charge could be filed if you ran afoul of law enforcement again before next October. So an explicit attempt to yeah. chill his threat. his yes. tactics. And I just mean, a- and also, I just want <laughs> there, there there has not been, I think, a clear ruling on this attempt by city law enforcement which we've seen a disturbing amount over the course of the last year uh, not just in LA but uh, across the country but but we'll talk specifically about Los Angeles here the attempt by city law enforcement to to use orders like this curfew orders orders to disperse and apply them to journalists, which seems to be broadly speaking unconstitutional. Many journalists have called them out for for this practice and for the uh, the use of force against journalists who are constitutionally refusing to comply uh, with a city ordinance that obviously does not hold up against the First Amendment. So the fact that we we basically have the police trying to bully a journalist out of doing their job. I mean, we we just talked last week about how we had this whole report about the police handling of the the protests in May and June of last year that did not address the issue of the treatment of journalists at all. Now we see the city attorney, Mike Fewer, who is running for mayor, acting apparently, his office acting apparently in conjunction with LAPD to violate the civil and constitutional rights of a journalist who was deeply in, involved in covering those protests because they don't like his coverage, because they don't like the things that he's saying. That's incredibly disturbing. Like I said, it's not Mike Fewer is not a fringe candidate for mayor. He is the fundraising leader. He's the voice of what is legal currently in the city of Los Angeles. And, uh, and I don't think that anybody should accept that him or his office should be able to to treat the press like this uh, and have it be acceptable. One thing this, that has been good to see is how much LA Taco has stood behind Lex, I think, in, in his reporting and the way that the LA Times used their reporting power mm-hmm. to get these records and 
amplify this story and continue to put the pressure on, which is it's just great to see that kind of not just the protection of your journalists and, and their rights, which we have discussed in about uh, other media outlets mm-hmm. in previous um, shows, but also just to see publications working together to um, really make the story hit even harder. So thank you to all the journalists who are out there working so hard to do those things. This connects obviously to also the case of KBCC reporter Josie Huang, who was thrown to the ground and arrested under these same pretenses, same situation, identified herself as press very, very clearly and was still taken to jail. It's still fundamentally unresolved as far as I'm concerned, but also one where her employer rallied behind her and the rest of the LA journalism community. And it's great to see others doing, doing the same for Lex now. Uh, Speaking of not fringe candidates for mayor, we alluded to this on, on the show last week. And then of course, as soon as the episode came out, it was announced council member Joe Buscaino of the 15th district announced that he is running for mayor of Los Angeles. We've talked about him many times on the show before. He is a former LAPD officer. He is has been a voice against the the move towards police accountability and the reduction of the LAPD over the last year and in favor of increased criminalization of homelessness and uh sweeps and displacement of of encampments in his in his district and across the city he's running he represents the district that covers from watts that follows a a shoelace down to san pedro and the and the harbor in los angeles and has enormous power over over the the port of la which is a um hugely uh, important institution in, in la county he already has some endorsements behind him. IBW 11, one of the electrical workers unions, has supported him the, the, a couple days after he announced. And at the same time, his seat is now open for 2020. He was running for uh, re-election for city council in 2022. He's dropped out of that race, and now some others have jumped in. But let's talk about Joe Buscaino for mayor first. I've, I've, I've heard... Different reactions to this, like, oh, how does he think that he can win? Like, he's so out of touch with, like, the way the city is thinking right now. Like, what what, what are your uh, what are your reactions to this? I mean, look at who who else is running. It's uh, I I have been saying I feel like Mike Fewer, city attorney, and Joe Buscaino, council member, are running basically the same campaign, which is uh, you know Mike Mike Fewer's stump speech has included saying like defund the police is a bad bad slogan and a bad message and and that he uh, obviously he went to bat at the conservative supreme court not that long ago to uh, speak against the boise versus martin ruling that said that the city has to provide unhoused people shelter or it can't criminalize them he he, he said that that would turn the city into a lawless place uh i see Joe Buscaino is being of the same mold. So, I mean, if we look at if we look at other announced people running for mayor, there's there's not really anybody else that is a credible threat to win right now. So, could Joe Buscaino win? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, as as things stand right now, I would say he probably has better than even odds. There's there just are not good candidates as we currently speak, and I'm not really sure. 
I'm not really sure that that will change sufficiently to make his candidacy less than a credible threat to be successful. Yeah, more people will certainly enter the race. I think it, it we've heard a lot, you know, like names like at least two other council members, Kevin DeLeon and Mark Ridley Thomas, Bob Hertzberg at the at the state. Like there's a, a lot of names thrown around for for who could run. But no certain candidates quite yet, except for these two uh, front runners. What do you think, Alyssa? Doesn't anybody good want this seat? Does it, does anybody want I, to be mayor? Doesn't I, anybody I mean, who's not you, a dude cop want to be no. mayor of the city? I think this. I I get now that I'm done worrying about the recall. Since Scott told me to calm down about that, now I have focused on worrying about the mayoral. Now race that is man tells woman is. co-host to calm down. You're being hysterical, woman. Stop it. <laughs> but now I'm really worried about this because you are right. Like this is a reactionary race now. It's people who are trying to build upon the uh, or prey upon, I guess, the fears of the people who are scared that change is happening in the city and we need someone to counterbalance that or multiple people to counterbalance that to make sure that that narrative doesn't catch hold. And if you're out there, someone, (laughs) please, please let's start getting some more people who are not dude cops running Uh, for mayor. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say, I mean, the, in the, in the recent in the recent weeks and months we've talked about Joe Buscaino in in uh, i think one of two contexts and and he's summarized it pretty well one is is the the attacks on the continued presence of unhoused people on the streets of Los Angeles people who have nowhere else to go and who are not being offered services sufficient to to meet their needs and the other is when it comes to the uh, efforts to so-called reimagine public safety, uh, which is an ongoing project here. He has been a vocal defender of police. He's formerly a, a member of the LAPD. But most recently, you know, we've we've talked about, for example, the magazine of the Los Angeles Police Protective League, the union there, who mm-hmm. are running a candidate to take Buscaino's place. Uh, cops surveyed, ha- made frequent mention of the fact that Buscaino is one of two council members that they actually don't want to throw out, the other <laughs> being John Lee. The, the other 13 council members, the, the police have decided they've had enough with and are and are basically looking for candidates to replace. So we kind of looked at, you know, is is it going to be a case where we're going to see a a, a crop of to the right candidates against most of the the sitting city council members except for Joe Buscaino and now he's left his city council race. Well, we do expect to see more progressive challengers and Brian Odega is running there in CD15. So now that being an open seat, potentially that opens a little bit of a a lane of of, of more support for the the challenger there. But I, I do kind of wonder, like, as far as Buscaino goes, 
what what do what do the pro cop forces want to see out of the the mayor's office and what can we really expect there because we know that he is going to to have a lot of support that won't be going into other races that won't be going to incumbent council members yeah tim uh, you alluded to the the candidate that the police union would presumably be pushing for who's now running in cd15 tim mccosker is a major city lobbyist i will take credit for breaking the story that he was running because (laughs) i just happened to be on the ethics website and saw that he had completely dissolved his huge lobbying firm his clients include the police union the state hotel business association netflix like really like pretty big like clients that he decided was uh worth severing his relationship with them in order to run for city council he's going to have a lot of money behind him he's also really really connected to to the the port of LA. He's lived in San Pedro, I think, his whole life. What this does have implications citywide because the LAPPL, the police union, has been threatening to raise a ton of money to fight against a number of sitting council members. But for better or for worse, that means this means a lot of their money is going to be spent on these two races. Uh, it means that they feel like they they have an angle in the mayoral race and they're going to spend money there and they're going to spend money trying to to keep this seat on the city council in in CD15. I I I think Joe Buscaino can totally win. I think he has a much much better chance than Mike Fuhrer. He's way more charismatic. He is perfectly positioned to take the 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 ascendant backlash in Los Angeles and channel it into political wins. He's a democrat he will frame all of his policy arguments around increasing uh, law enforcement and increasing criminalization around like common sense. And he's already like in running. He says, this isn't the LA that I remember. Yeah. Which, I mean, sounds, what's the difference between that and make LA great again? Like it's this, I mean, it's like the same like ideology, but yeah, I mean, Scott is absolutely like, I, I see so many people, making fun of his candidacy as uh, a total non-starter and i think we just do that like at our at our peril it it's it's very very possible that he could be the next mayor let's talk to somebody else uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyone else <laughs> no someone amazing we're excited about this let's uh let's let's go to our conversation with our guest isaac bryan co-chair of the measure j campaign previously currently candidate for assembly district 54 in los angeles we have a very special guest here today on the show isaac bryan who is running for assembly district 54 as our ever cascading election system is happening with a special election every two or three months now. If you'll remember, we announced the results of an election last week, which means that that seat is now up for election. And that is coming up very, very quickly. I believe the first election is May 18th. And then if a runoff is needed, that will happen July 20th. So welcome, Isaac Bryan. Well, thank you all for having me. Good morning. Thanks for being here, Isaac. Good morning. I was saying, I don't think this is a reason to vote for someone necessarily, but if Isaac wins, the the chain is broken. No special. 
That, that's right. <laughs> we, the machine we, is we broken. We will have no special more special elections, elections yeah. for this particular election. Yes. I think that's a good reason <laughs> to vote. I don't know. Um, so Isaac, <laughs> yeah, I think that's that. You should go with that. I think. What we love to ask people is how how they describe this district, the district that they are you know running for. How do you describe both where it is and and who lives there? Yeah, I think of the fifty fourth assembly district as kind of a microcosm of California as a whole. You've got West Side affluence, right? White folks, uh, the number one public university in the world, uh, and not just because I went there. You also have a strong showing of renters. You've got historic Black communities in the Merck Park, the Dare Heights, View Park, Baldwin Hills. You've got a strong AAPI community. You've got a, uh, a Latinx community. You've got a range of, of different social problems and needs. You've got the entire city of Culver City inside of the 54th, uh, which itself has its own history uh, with communities of color and, and displacement and gentrification and new folks moving in. And I think it's one of the most incredible districts in California. You've also got Sony Pictures. <laughs> You've got Amazon, you've got small businesses, mom and pop shops. Really, if you can solve problems in the 54th, I think you can solve problems for all of California. I love that. And and you have actually worked in in the district for some time, in addition to your many other roles, which we'll talk about in a second. That's correct. I've, I've worked in the district in many capacities. I've, I've only ever lived in the district as long as I've lived in Los Angeles. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So in addition to um, uh, your work there, you were the founder of UCLA's Black Policy Project, which we can speak about. And you were one of the key coalition leaders for Measure J, which we've talked about many times on this show. Um, what's the latest on Measure J? The latest on Measure J is that we need to stay actively engaged and focused in. Because what I organized for and what 2.1 million people voted for was 10 percent of unrestricted county revenues which even the own members of the Board of Supervisors, Sheila Kuehl, then Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas, called it about 500 to $800 million. Uh, the latest accounting by the CEO is, has cut it all the way down to about $100 million, and folks are upset. Uh, and so we, we're developing plans. There's an advisory committee led by a number of folks, 17 uh, appointed and selected members, and then a lot of community members and subcommittees that are devising plans on where these resources should go to really build out the continuum of care that we all voted for, but the amount of money uh, that the county is is deciding is allocated for Measure J is significantly less than what we marched and voted for. So folks need to be engaged. I think people are going to fight for this. We fought to get it on the ballot. We fought to pass it. And we're definitely going to fight to make sure that we get the amount of resources needed. We can't pass a Measure J every single year to get the resources that we know we voted for this last November. This is interesting because, I mean, our, our listeners, I think, have a, have a good degree of familiarity with, with Measure J. Of course, as you mentioned, it did pass with, with major popular support here in Los Angeles County, part of what was a strong showing for reforms to the public safety and criminal justice infrastructure that we've known for a long time here during the last election cycle. But now I think what we're, what we're seeing is a much stronger institutional inertia that is trying to keep the, the pre-existing status quo in place. When we talk about Measure J, this is, this is a measure that, like you're saying, people marched in the street for, a lot of people turned, turned out in, in large numbers for at the voting booths or <laughs> voting from home as the, as the case probably was. 
Um, but I'm, I'm curious how you think about what is currently what what is the currently evolving battle within the county? Why why is the county attempting to tamp down on something that seems like it has a popular mandate from the voters? You know, I don't want to speak to the county CEO's intentions, right? But I know that often when the people uh, speak louder than the way that historic institutions have been designed to function or have functioned for a long time and the people call for them to redirect, be reimagined, to be transformed, there's a pushback from the system itself. And I think minimizing the impact of Measure J by allocating, you know, $700 million less than what everybody believed that we had just secured uh, is one way for the system to you know, to maintain the status quo. But I don't think we're going to allow that, right? None of us are going to allow that. There's 2.1 million people that I don't think are going to allow that. There's, we know what we marched for. We had members of the Board of Supervisors who clearly articulated what that dollar amount should look like. And and so I think this is going to be a a harder fight than we anticipated. But for those of us that have been in policy work for a long time, we always know that winning the campaign is actually the easy part. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the start of the As hard right? as a campaign is, that is the that is the easy part. The hard part is yeah. implementing really good policy, right? And transformative policy. And that's where we're at right now. Uh, as far as implementation goes, when you were when you were part of the team putting together Measure J, crafting this ask, making sure that people were going to support it in November, just out, out of curiosity. So uh, like you're saying, everybody is everybody is expecting this is going to be uh, $800 million, something like that on an annual basis. That's, you know, that's a huge, huge transformative change for Los Angeles County. I'm curious, can you maybe describe for us what, what was the vision for that amount of money, that $800 million? And then like what, what, as far as you can tell, what is the impact if it is so uh, if it is so reduced to a hundred million or so a year? Like, what what does that mean for what people can expect to see on the ground if if the county is successful in making those reductions? Yeah, well, first and foremost, the county cannot be successful, right? Right. I, I refuse to let that right. to let that be right. something that anybody accepts. But what we would see with eight hundred million dollars, we'd see incredible small business support. Right, because we know PPP loans missed major sections of our communities. We would see affordable housing support as we build new innovative models, eco homes, and others um, for those who are unhoused or those who have recently lost their housing or those who will lose their housing after we lift the moratorium up. Right, we need support there. We would see investments in the youth development infrastructure. Right now, we spend over four hundred thousand dollars per year per young person to incarcerate them in LA County. You would see the building up of a youth development system that really helps young people define themselves and and reach their fullest potential instead of caging it away at the most costly rate I've ever heard of. You would also see uh, greater infrastructure support for alternatives to incarceration. There was a plan that was written uh, by a work group that was chaired by Dr. Bob Ross from the California Endowment and a number of community partners, actually county stakeholders as well. It was a really democratic process. The recommendations were voted on. There were over 100 and 14 of them, and they were submitted to the county last February, uh, but they were not funded by the county. And of those 114 recommendations, there are all kinds of models um, for restorative villages and, and, and different kinds of care models to get those who are incarcerated pre-trial, those who are suffering from a mental, mental or physical ailment, which is 70% of the county jail, those who would better be served with care than incarceration, building those infrastructures. And you can do that with $800 million. You can't do it completely, which is why 
then Senator and now Supervisor Holly Mitchell always referred to this measure as a floor and not the ceiling. Uh, but we even thought that floor was $800 million. So to put the floor mm-hmm. at $100 million is the system really bucking back against the will of the people. And I think the people need to know that so that we can get activated uh, and stay engaged. So uh, I hate to use like all these war terms, but you're kind of fighting on on two fronts with all this work around combating racial injustice in, in policing and jails and the prison system. You're fighting to get this money spent and implemented at all. And at the same time, there's this rising backlash, a word I have to use every episode, that is that is uh, getting riled up as if this as if this stuff has already been implemented. They point at homelessness, and when it comes to George Gascon, they point at any crime that happens in the city, and they're like, "Oh well, that's Gascon is now is now responsible for this." We've seen it in San Francisco. I think we're you know we're we're a couple years behind them on this schedule. Uh, but there's this furious backlash up there over over their DA Chesa Budin and uh, and over some of the reforms that he has put in place up there. What's your philosophy? What's your approach to managing this backlash? Is it something that has to be tended to before it gets like fully out of control? Is it something that just has to be ignored and you and you press on? Or what, what what's your uh, what's your answer to this? Yeah, Audrey Lord has a quote, and it's a. Um... If I didn't define myself for myself, I'd be crushed into other people's fantasies of me and eaten alive. And I think when I think about that quote in this context, it's about reclaiming mm-hmm. the narrative. Right? Mm-hmm. LAPD shot five people last week. Yeah. <laughs> right? That story is not being told. Um, yeah. yeah. We have the opportunity to define the own narratives, our own narratives in the community, and it shouldn't take uh, an eight-minute murder on all of our screens for folks mm-hmm. to stay activated for racial justice and for a more equitable society. And we need to remind folks just how gruelingly hard it is to push change through. It's not enough just to vote. I think there's a big feeling of apathy now that we've got Democrats all the way up and down the ballot. We took the White House, we got Congress, we got the Senate with our swing vote and the vice president. We've got Measure J, Supervisor Mitchell, Gascon, I'm done, let me go back home. And it's like, no, we have to stay activated. We have to stay engaged. We have to hold folks accountable, right? And if we don't do that, harm has been reciprocated in a bipartisan fashion for a long time, especially for communities of color, especially for poor folks, black folks, indigenous folks, right? And so we have to be mindful of that. And so with Measure J, with all that's going on right now, it's a narrative battle. And it's it's one where we have to stay engaged so we can continue to tell the stories of what's really happening. If anyone wants to say, crime is up, but neglects the idea that poverty is up, that struggle is up, that the idea of of what it takes to survive is up, that we are living in a global pandemic where houselessness is up, right? Where communities lost their economic footing, they lost their homes. In many cases, they lost their lives at disproportionate rates. If we're not talking about any of that and instead letting the narrative be defined as crime is up, (laughs) then we we are making a huge mistake. This is I, I think we want to get back to some of your local work, too. But this is a segue for me into, you know, you, you talk about like Democrats getting voted in and like so many of them in, in, in place, but not necessarily that much to, to show for it in different places. That is, is one way to describe California's state legislature. Yeah. Uh, and this is a this is a body that you're 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 fighting to get into right now where you know you end up with it's a vote among among many once you're in there 
how, especially on the, the the policies that you've been fighting for outside of office, how do you use a seat in the state legislature to uh, to, to make an impact? Yeah, you, you coalition build, right? Mm-hmm. The legislators got 80 members of the assembly, 40 members of the Senate, and it, and it takes a, a, a certain kind of vision and a, an ability to, to move change forward that brings folks into the tent, has more seats at the table and still holds the ground on values and integrity. Uh, and it's, you know, Measure J is actually a great example of that, right? That's one of those pieces of policy where you had Black Lives Matter Los Angeles on the steering committee and an endorsement by Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, right? Because mm-hmm. they work well together all the time. It's, it's, uh, it's that kind of an example of bringing folks to the table to fight for something that is universally good, um, that I have a special skill set at doing. I've done it on many occasions and and often to push harder things through than we we thought were imaginable, right? There are there are no long there, there, there is no longer any school police officers on LAUSD campuses, mm-hmm. right? And that was a vision that we had over a year ago that we brought a coalition together that we got the superintendent Austin Butner to agree to, right? And those kinds of things, that kind of coalition building is what we can bring to Sacramento. It's what I can bring to Sacramento, and I come from a district uh, where you have to do that kind of coalition building to move anything across because it's so diverse because there are so many constituencies. Uh, and I'm really, really excited about that. We lost some of our greatest justice champions uh, and Dr. Weber going to the Secretary of State and Supervisor Mitchell coming back home to LA County. We really don't have that line holder on progressive values in the assembly. And it's something that I think a lot of folks would be excited to see me go do. I mean, I'm curious too, because um, you referenced earlier the the death of George Floyd as the spark that got so many people thinking about what is, you know, for for Black Angelinos or Black Californians, something that we think about very often throughout the course of, honestly, throughout the course of the day is uh, is issues of Black policy, something that you're intimately connected with here in Los Angeles. But for other people, there is a luxury of not necessarily having to think about that for for a lot of, of Californians. I'm curious, when you look at when you look at 2020 in Sacramento and you look at the fact that we did have this huge uh, national moment where the the public's attention was focused on state violence and the deaths of, of black folks at the hands of government agents and, and the police, what do you what do you feel about what Sacramento was was able to accomplish or not able to accomplish in the wake of that? And do you think that there is hope for the the type of coalition that you're talking about building in Sacramento to be more successful going forward? Yeah, I, I definitely see a lot of hope, but I also see a lot of problems. Right in a year like last year, we had a decertification bill in the state legislature, one where if you're mm-hmm. a law enforcement officer and you are fired, literally fired from your department for misconduct. And I don't think people realize how hard it is to fire a police officer, right? The chief has to say you're fired, then they appeal to a board of rights. That board of rights has to affirm that firing before they're fired, right? You shouldn't be allowed to work for any other department in the state of California. That's what the bill called for. It's on par with many, many other states, and we couldn't pass it, right? We had the Crisis Act, which was an alternative emergency responder bill issued by the former occupant of the seat I'm running for, Sidney Kamlager, that would allow for us to pilot alternative crisis responses for things that do not require a gun, like uh, mental health crises. Uh, And we couldn't pass that, uh, mostly because we were told there was no money 
in the state legislature. And we know that that is actually now false. There's $15 billion in surplus and another $20 billion coming from the federal government this year. It's a whole hell of a lot of money that needs to get all the way down to the communities that were most impacted uh, by COVID-19. We have to do a lot of repair work. Um, but we also passed reparations last year, right? I was the first person in California to testify in committee in support of that bill. Shout out to Dr. Weber. And it takes a hell of a coalition to put reparations at the table and to get it signed. And so I've seen success I have hope, but we cannot get complacent because if we sit back, a lot of good things are going to die in committee and not make it to the people where they belong. One one area I wanted to focus on, which I think it really speaks to a lot of what you're um, talking about is and the environmental justice angle of drilling in our neighborhoods and uh, your work with Stand LA, something we've been talking about for a long time where change has been made both at the local and the state level, but that would really position you in particular to make a big splash, I think, when it comes to policies that have really for decades uh, destroyed black and brown communities here in L.A. and across the state. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one of my my favorite endorsements in this race so far is Senator Henry Stern and, and a few other environmental leaders that have really pushed the line. There's SB 47 in the legislature right now that would slow down permitting. We, we have to get rid of the Inglewood oil fields. Right. We have to move towards a greener economy. We've got kids who have higher asthma rates and poor public health outcomes and lower life expectancy simply because they live next to these environmental hazards. Right. You've got uh, community hotspots and places where we should have green spaces. Uh, you have lead pipes in some of our schools still. We talk about Flint, Michigan, but we don't talk about the fact that our own school districts still have lead pipes in many cases. We have to be active about this and the state has to play a role in setting the vision forward so that we can meet that. I hear a lot of times that we have to be, you know, one of the things that holds this up is, is labor. The idea that you are going to displace black and brown jobs, good paying union jobs to move towards a green economy. And I just don't believe that. I believe in a just transition. I believe in getting folks out of harmful systems and into systems of care and opportunity. It was the same thinking behind Measure J. If you build up new systems rooted in care and opportunity and community well-being, you are going to need a workforce to work in them and they should be unionized. They should be paid a livable and gainful wage. They should have retirement in the same way that our harmful industries have. And so I'm very hopeful and optimistic about the progress the state legislator is making. I'm hopeful and optimistic about the champions in the state legislature. And I'm very grateful that the 54th has Stand LA and many other coalitions. Shout out to many leaders in Culver City who are willing to push the envelope forward when it comes to environmental justice, not just for our neighborhoods, but for the whole state of California. That's right. And you, you've also been working on another project, a report, uh, the state of Black LA. Is, is this through the UCLA Black Policy Project or some, through the city? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely through the UCLA Black Policy Project, but it's also part of uh, the, the Committee for Greater LA, uh, which dropped Got a No it. Looking okay, Back right, report right, for Greater LA, uh, not right. that long ago. This report came about because the No Looking Back report, which I was a contributor to, really wanted to address in a, a very collaborative fashion what the impact of COVID-19 was having in our communities. But at the same time that that, re- I mean, that report was so important to folks that we brought USC and UCLA together, right? Dean Gary Sakura and Manuel Pastor over at USC mm-hmm. teamed up to really anchor the research of that report. But as it was going on, as we were doing that report, is when George Floyd lost his life. When he was murdered, Breonna Taylor was murdered, Rayshard Brooks was murdered, Dejan Kizzy locally was murdered. Uh, and more of us took to the streets at any point than at any point in American history. And that's when we realized that 
just doing a report on the impact of COVID-19 and not having a specific Black focus was going was gonna to mean that we were going to miss something important about what's going on and about what's been going on and what the meaningful uh, redress should be from our state. And so the state of Black LA really brought the table back together. April Verrett from SEIU 2015 is chairing the process, but you've got Deputy Mayor Brenda Shockley involved. You've got the Brotherhood Crusade involved. It's the Urban League centennial anniversary, 100 years. Michael Lawson is involved. Um, Jacqueline Wagner is involved. Marquise Harris-Dawson's office is involved. Supervisor Holly Mitchell's office is involved. The LA Chamber of Commerce is involved. Pretty much any uh, sector of Black Los Angeles we have tried to have at the table. There's an academic council that includes not just UCLA and USC, but folks from LMU and Pepperdine and Cal State Dominguez Hills, Dr. Anthony Samad and others. So it was, it's really an attempt to look at Black Los Angeles in the most comprehensive way that we can and see what does economic mobility look like? Do we still live in the food deserts that we know we live in? How were we impacted by COVID-19 when it came to infection rates and death rates? Um, what does housing insecurity look like currently for Black folks when we know we are disproportionately the largest share of our unhoused population? What did small, small businesses got hit by COVID-19? There's a feeling that they were disproportionately impacting Black communities. What's the status on that? To really pull all of that together and then list out recommendations for the city, for the county, and for the state. And if we do a good job, I'm hopeful that some of those recommendations will be things that I can then fight for in Sacramento because it'll be the clearest look that we've had on them in a while. I think it's so important. Um, I mean, the... the the concept of of Black LA has really changed dramatically. I mean, I mean, even in the last decade. But when when you look back over the course of the last several decades, uh, what we see is that Black Los Angeles, as in other urban areas in the state, is is shrinking. We have failed as a state, as uh, you know, the the wealthiest state, the place where so much innovation and economic progress is is seen to be happening we've we've really failed to broadly distribute that within black communities to the to the end result that black communities are shrinking folks are leaving and looking for other opportunities in places like las or las vegas phoenix you know even in uh, back in southern states so i mean as part of as part of your work on the state of black la you and and this uh, incredible coalition that y'all have put together is part of it looking at how to strengthen those foundations so that so that people actually are getting the support that they need and the opportunities they need to be able to stay within Los Angeles. Absolutely. Uh, we need greater tenant protections. Uh, we also need greater protections when we bring in investments. That's been the, the age-old problem, right? How do you improve the the infrastructures of a community, bring in new business, bring in new opportunity without increasing property values to the point where rent becomes untenable or folks have such a big incentive to sell grandmother's house uh, and, and move to the Inland Empire or to, you know, Lancaster and Palmdale. Um, and so we've got to have those kind of protections when we're bringing in new, new investments, especially when we're talking stadiums like the two that are going up in Inglewood, right, or even civic infrastructures like rail lines and others. We have to be mindful of ways to incentivize staying in the community, um, not just for those who, who inherited grandmama's home, but for all of the renters who can't afford for the rent to just go through the roof incredibly quick. Inglewood didn't get rent control until just 
a couple of years ago. And even then it's got a sunset on it. So we've got to be incredibly mindful about what these kind of investments mean for folks who live in communities, especially when you're talking about historically black communities and pushing them out. And that's another reason to think critically about what's happened to small businesses. Um, because for some families that has been their economic engine. Um, and there's a lot of incredibly historic and important and vital black businesses that are currently shut down and, and may never come back again. Um, but in the 54th, it's going to be my prerogative to make sure that they come back again. We've talked a lot about today about the murder of George Floyd as this big in, inflection point for the country and um, for this racial reckoning that's happening. And we're we're kind of in the midst of an, another one this week with what's happened in Atlanta with the shooting of um, eight people, uh, many of them Asian women. Um, how do you see that this, you know, as as with your district, like you said, which has this in- incredible diverse coalition um, of people from all backgrounds that are living in in an area that's changing very quickly, uh, not from their own choices in, in many times. How do you see what we're what we've gone through over this last week as as part of what you're going to bring uh, as far as this um, intersectionality when it comes to addressing you know this racial violence that's happening? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we have to do is we have to call things what they are and not be afraid of that, right? And white supremacy shows its head in, in many different ways, especially when you when you mix it intersectionally with patriarchy. Before Atlanta, there were nearly 4,000 incidents of anti-AAPI hate, according to Stop AAPI Hate, their national report, which I encourage everybody to read. Right, that came out like the day before, right? Before the, before the shootings. Correct, it was like, and women yeah. reported being over twice as likely to have an incident than men which tells us something about the way Asian communities in this country are, are viewed through the kind of historic lens or, or the predominant historic lens in our society. And we have to be incredibly mindful of that. In Los Angeles, there were over 245 reported incidents just from March to last October. Mostly verbal harassment, but nearly 10% were physical harassment, physical assault, right? And so it's, it's not a far jump uh, to get to something as extreme as we saw in Atlanta. Nearly 40% of incidents happen on public streets, which shows the boldness of the way that folks are spewing out hate. And another thing to be incredibly mindful of here in Los Angeles is that not all Asian communities, API communities, are, are treated the same. Southeast Asian communities uh, even have even starker encounters with law enforcement officers and also lack economic mobility in the same way. And so we have to be able to, to see what's happening with our brothers and sisters and with our neighbors. Uh, and we have to be able to disaggregate beyond the, the, the basic scope that we often use to really get down to the root of the problem, because it's those who are most impacted by a problem that are closest to the solutions. And so my heart hurts and aches um, for all eight who are impacted in Atlanta. Uh, and I think the whole country needs to be mindful of that, needs to reflect on that, because we shouldn't see extreme hate violence for us to act, to act boldly especially when we, to reflect back on what just happened in November, we just put all the folks in office that we wanted to be in office, right? So I don't want to see people die on my screen for us to do the right thing. I want us to have the bold vision, the courage to step up for what's right, uh, even when it's not convenient. And that's something that I'd like to bring to Sacramento. It's something that I think California has always been uniquely well-positioned to lead on. uh, And it's something that I think that we need now more than ever. Isaac Bryan, thank you so much for joining 
LA podcast uh, running for California Assembly in District 54. Tell us how to ha- tell us where to, people can find you and find uh, your uh, across all your socials. Yeah, so on social media, uh, my handle is at ib2 underscore real. I was encouraged by my campaign team to to set up a new account, but that's where I've been for years. Uh, so you can, you can find me where I've always been uh, at IB2Real. But the campaign website uh, is IsaacBrian4forca.com. Uh, and there's a lot of good information on there. You can sign up for our listservs to get more information. This campaign is going to be one of the quickest special elections we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a gift to you, voters. Um, it's, it's less than <laughs> it's two true. months away. Um, but it's going to take an incredibly engaged and active coalition to pull this off. Uh, and I can't wait to see you all in May. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing the show. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.